Dr. Makari, uh, you wrote a book called Soul Machine. How did you get into that? Well, um, you know, I started out writing a different book, actually. This is the same thing that happened to me my last book. I, I had this idea, and the idea was really to write a, a history of the origins of psychiatry. And I've uh, been studying the history of psychiatry for much of my adult career, so I felt um, confident that I could do something of that size. And uh, what happened was I got working on it, and uh, it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel alive. There was something that felt um, dead about it and, and boring even. Like it's something where I could tell the critical questions I wanted to ask were not being placed into focus. And so what I realized was that, you know, before one writes about psychiatry, one has to understand the emergence of the psyche and how the whole idea of the mind, of mental health, of mental illness, all of these interrelated categories emerged. And so I pulled the lens back and I started to um, uh, realize that was the project. And luckily I was kind of halfway up the hill because the subtitle of the book, as you know, is The Invention of the Modern Mind. It's a rather breathtaking subtitle. Um, and, uh, you know, if I wasn't halfway up the hill, I'm not sure I would have uh, ever attempted to go all the way up. But uh, that's the way I conceived of it, and, and, and then really things started to fall into place. Yeah, yeah. So, so in a way, wanting to study psychiatry led you to define the question, which then led you to focus on the invention of the mind or the emergence. Exactly. Yeah. And I was surprised to find that, you know, that, that the story of the emergence of the mind in Western culture is um, a big, um, a rich one that you can't really find um, easily, that you find parts of it in different segregated communities and different departments, if you will. Like, you know, the history of philosophy has its way of writing about mind, and that's, you know, one philosopher talking to another and this kind of uh, philosophy of mind where it's really kind of not very historical usually. Uh, and then history of psychiatry talks about the history of mental illness and mental health. History of scientific psychology talks about experimental and attempts to scientifically show that. So everyone had these little sectors, and my hope was to be able to tell the whole story together because the story starts before these sectors even exist. The story starts when there are no such definitions. And so what I found is that by pulling the lens back, you could tell this very rich story about people with urgent questions that were historical about who they were and what kind of world they wanted to live in and what meaning could be found in a world that wasn't dominated by the old medieval um, Western Christian beliefs. Yeah, yeah, and and I in the you know few past minute you mentioned people with urgent questions, and I think that one of the the things that I felt when I read your book is it was very much an embodied history. It was not a debate of abstract ideas. Uh, you conveyed a sense of circumstances, times, periods, and individuals uh, who brought in something to their conceptions of the mind. Yeah, so thank you. I'm delighted to hear you say that because. You know, my, my feeling was that, uh, you know, when you jump around from, from Plato to Descartes to Wittgenstein, you're, you're, you're really doing something that's very, very difficult to do. All of these people are answering pressing questions that are historically situated. And so 
if you can figure out what the questions are that they're trying to answer, it'll make a lot more sense and you'll understand much more clearly why they answered it the way they answered it. And then that can help us, not with the final answer of what the mind is or how we situate the soul and mechanistic views of the universe and the mind in modern culture, but at least you'll be able to ask the right questions. At least you'll know the history of the questions that people ask so that you can ask the most relevant question for you today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so maybe that's a segue into talking about some of the questions that people ask. Yeah. Well, look, I think that the book starts out with a kind of crisis, and the crisis is the one that that gives birth to modernity. Uh, The crisis involves two very central um, uh, shifts. One is the uh, rise of what's been called the scientific revolution and the way that that undermines a number of beliefs about the universe and the world that we live in including humankind. And the second is uh, the religious wars, the Christian religious wars that were raging after Protestantism emerged that were not just between Catholics and Protestants, but were between Protestants and Protestants as well. And the sense that there was this this culture that was literally falling apart, that it was based on um, very deeply held, very old traditions about about human beings having rational souls, about that organizing a social and political structure, and uh, now science and this religious view of human beings were both seen to be deeply problematic. So that then engendered a kind of attempt to um, give up tradition and develop new, what they self-consciously call themselves moderns, uh, ways of thinking about about uh, who we are, and um, the traditional um binary of soul and body suddenly started to be challenged by this new disruptive third entity, uh, the mind, which was neither a soul insofar as many thought that it was embodied, and it, nor was it the machine that mechanistic scientists um, conceived of uh, when they thought of the universe. So it was an inter- uh, it is this kind of in-between no-man's land where the mind emerges and, I argue, creates much of what we consider to be modern culture in this kind of in-between zone. Yeah, and so so maybe that's the key part, that the emergence of the mind is the emergence of that in-between zone, of that twilight, uh, that, you know, is impossible to reconcile with one extreme or the other. Exactly. And I think, you know, that's to, to bring it home to uh, to kind of everyday, uh, like this is the kind of thing that psychiatrists and psychologists know. They feel this. They know that, that you know, I'm a, I work in a, in a medical college and, and uh, I'm, I'm uh, you know, confronted by the fact that, that surely the, the many people in medical college don't think what I do, um, certainly as a psychotherapist, is scientists uh, scientific, scientifically relevant, and that at the same time my friends who are humanists and novelists, you know, think that what I do is too scientific. So that there's an in-between zone that that the small little field, these these small, small little fields, are in themselves. If you say, you know, for a whole culture, they're pretty insignificant. I argue they contain the remnants of this unresolvable problem, and that that they're this kind of symptom, if you will, of these bigger problems that paradoxes that inform uh, modern man. Mm-hmm, 
Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the, you use the phrase of dilemma of the embodied mind, um, which I think is a very good phrase to illustrate that, that paradox. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a dilemma depending on how you think of the embodiment. So, so the first attempt to talk about the mind as embodied um, was, uh, you know, I think the most significant person was John Locke, who was both a doctor and, of course, the, one of the founders of liberalism. And, and Locke and adopted his teacher's notion that you could, it was fair to say that there was active thinking matter in the brain, even though the rest of the matter was passive, and that the way that there could possibly be active thinking matter in the brain was simply that God made it so. So he said God made it so and moved on and, and forevermore was, uh, you know, attacked for this kind of seemingly unfair way of arguing. Um, but then, you know, people started to come up with different ways of thinking about the body. And that's one of the points of the book is that the mind makes no sense in certain ways of thinking about science and in certain ways of thinking about the body, but not in others. So the two most fertile periods of time for mentalism were times where there were scientifically legitimate, reasonable models by which people could conceive of the mind as part of the body. And those were two movements, both of which were discredited. I'm not sure that that distinguishes them from many other movements because many of them from the 18th century were discredited, but uh, uh, argued for emergent properties and argued for hierarchies of function in which it was possible to conceive of something like an active force that had the capacity to uh, account for something like will, human will. You know, a machine doesn't have will. So this was one of the huge problems for the mechanists. To, to, they either had to suggest that human beings had no will or they were stumped. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, so so those two models of vitalism in France and and romantic biology in in, in the German speaking lands gave people a um, way of conceiving of the mind within the body. So the way you think of the body determines whether a mind can exist within it or not. And uh, I, one of the points of the book is that I think we need to think about that today, uh, insofar as we have. Many of our scientists uh, conceive of the body in a way that makes it impossible to have a mind. Yeah, yeah. so maybe let's dwell a little bit more on that point, you know, historically and now, uh, of the kind of body that makes it impossible to have a mind, as opposed to the kind of body in which a mind can exist. Well, so if you define a a mind uh, as, you know, the phenomena that includes consciousness, that includes intention, and includes the capacity uh, for thought to to drive the body, you have to have a model that includes some sort of top-down regulation. You have to have a model that says ideas are not epiphenomena. They do something. They have causal force. And if you have a model of the body that says that's basically reductionist and says the smallest things are the causal factors that create the more complex things that, genes or, you know, something even smaller than genes, we could say, are the causal factors in our biology, then it makes no sense for something way downstream and way up the hierarchical ladder to have any kind of causal downward flow. Mm-hmm. And so people who are, you know, re- reductionist in this way uh, end up reducing away the mind and then declaring that 
there can't be a scientific model for the mind. Well, that's not so. It's simply that their model of science dictates that it makes no sense to have a mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so um, it takes a model in which there is a coexistence, and the coexistence is that mind actually is going to have not just an active role, but maybe a leading role in making things happen. Perhaps, yeah. And, and I think, you know, the difficulty in this is you have to be comfortable with uncertainty, and you have to be comfortable being agnostic. I think the state of science is such as that we don't know how the mind is situated in the brain. We don't know exactly how to put these two things together. And so we have to tolerate the fact that we have a whole slew of phenomena, phenomena that are very difficult to simply dismiss, that indicate that we have something called, you could call it a mind, you could call it other things, but those phenomena that are abstracted into the notion of the mind are real. And we also have these very powerful ways of thinking about the body that seem to be unbridgeable with the mind. I think it's fair to say that that's the state we're at right now, and the most dangerous, I think, uh, movement is to be eager to reduce one to the other, to eliminate the ambiguity, because then we won't be trying to build the bridge, which might take a 100 years to build, but will never be built if people don't think it needs to be built. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, in a way, that history is the history of the difficulty of living with that ambiguity, the strong drive to try and find a unifying theory, uh, and, uh, and, and the difficulty of any of these theories to, uh, to account for everything. I agree. And, and I think that, you know, one of the pressures that, that clinicians have, and one of the reasons why doctors and clinicians have been uh, often the culprits in trying to reduce too simply and too quickly is that they have a lot of pressure from their patients to come up with answers. Um, that being said, the most common way that these things get reduced is by our scientists who need to have a simplified model to have a, a testable question, need to reduce. Reductionism is not a bad word in and of itself. For a scientist, you try to reduce things down to one variable that you alter and you see if it's the critical variable. That's one of the ways that we do science. Um, But that often means the scientists take a strong stand about reality rather than just what's a convenient and important scientific perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so maybe that brings us back to uh, you had started to talk about the history as you describe it in the book, and we started with Locke and 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 the uh, the flowering of the scientific period. So in a way, what came next? Well, you see, so after Locke uh, returned to England as a hero, uh, he and uh, Newton and Bacon became these kind of culture heroes for much of Europe. They, England was considered to be the most progressive country, uh, and uh, so that way of thinking uh, made its way into France. Now, France was very, very important, not just because of the French, but because the language uh, of French dominated all of the continent of Europe. It was as close to a lingua franca as there was, uh, and so um, this, these ideas started to get translated into French. Uh, there were a whole bunch of post-Lockians, uh, the sensationalists, and the, this stuff became part of the uh, encyclopedia of Diderot and Belombert and a way of thinking 
that um, was integrated into the body by these, you know, I think they're, they're somewhat forgotten, but unfairly so, a very important kind of countercultural movement, which was this, the, these people in Montpellier called the Vitalists. And the Vitalists, as I said before, were very comfortable with an idea that there was an active force within the body, uh, that bodies were not machines the way Descartes said the animal was a machine, the body was a machine, that that was the wrong analogy, and that rather it was a, uh, uh, a an entity that was charged with nervous sensibility. And this nervous sensibility in its most complex emergent form would be a mind. So they very much had a psychosomatic model of the body, and it became very influential to not just Diderot and the encyclopedia, but Pinel and the emergence of uh, medicine that was called mental medicine. He is, Pinel, usually considered to be the father of psychiatry. He comes right out of this tradition because he sees the capacity for mental illness to come from the mind alone, the brain alone, and the environment. He has a very biopsychosocial model that allows him to feel very comfortable as a scientist. He's not breaking with anybody because he's following this tradition in France that said the mind is embodied. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, as you say, a biopsychosocial model, and um, within it, um, a postulate of a way in which there can be an action of the mind over body, which was a big question when people tried to integrate both, of how can ideas make matters move. Exactly. Exactly, and so so his two biggest uh, disease categories, uh, mania and melancholia, were mental, and he and he's the one who coined the term mental medicine. Uh, so uh, that's what he thought he was doing. And he also had a category for um, skull deformities that led to brain deformities in children, and something like uh, uh, you know the degeneration in old age. So these were both non-mental. Uh, so of the four categories, two were mental and, and two were really more brain-based. And that shows you that he was very comfortable integrating the two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that in itself is something that was not easy to digest for many people. Well, it wasn't easy to digest um you know, uh, for for some, but I, I think surprisingly it was quite easy to digest um, for the doctors at the time. In other words, vitalism had made enough inroads, uh, and the one lingering um, problem with this model was, of course, the Catholic Church. Uh, the Catholic Church uh, opposed any kind of notion of the mind because they thought uh, that it would uh, undermine the uh, everlasting soul. So what happened is this is a mostly um, subterranean, underground dialogue with a lot of euphemism and a lot of caginess until the French Revolution. And the French Revolution occurs, and there's no, it's not a surprise that when the French Revolution occurs, that's really when psychiatry emerges and Pinel emerges doing his, um, his, uh, Pretman Moral, his, his psychological treatments, and when his colleague Cabernet creates what he calls a human science, which is a complete science of mankind, including the mind, that eliminates any kind of soul. So these were both atheists who were, um, you know, uh, came out of 
what had been like a building tradition of 30 or 40 years of underground atheism in France and only could really emerge in the light of day after the Catholic Church uh, had been um, put back on its heels by the revolution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, of course, just the same way the revolution brought about counter-revolution, you know, this same phenomenon happened in the history of ideas. Yes, that's right. That's right. And so counter, the counter-enlightenment is going, is going to be emerging in uh, mostly uh, the German-speaking lands and going to make a very powerful case that uh, this Lockean model of the mind, which was uh, focused on consciousness, so there's no model of the unconscious in Locke, consciousness and associations and reason, both fallible and uh and uh, in some way uh, approximating the truth, that this is um, a wrong direction and that the direction for the counter-enlightenment thinkers, starting with um, uh, Herder and really moving on uh, to people like Johann Ryle, who coins the term psychiatry, is that the passions are really the central movers for inner life and that uh, the passions and the inner self which includes an unconscious inner self, uh, become the the primary um, uh, primary kind of definers of uh, selfhood for uh, the, the the idealists and romantics uh, of that period. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, the, the the passions, how are they related to the debate of the body mind uh, nature of things? Well, that's a really big question because they're always related and they're very much part of the debate going all the way back to uh, Descartes and Hobbes, even before that Aquinas. In other words, there was a constant running debate as to the re- relative role of passions uh, and uh, reason. Uh, the oldest way of parsing it was that passions were animal and therefore not really part of the the highest soul for Aquinas, which was the rational soul. So these were animal things that luckily we had a rational soul. It was celestial, God-given, and it therefore had the capacity to control these passions. Now, when Descartes got rid of the animal soul and said, that body is just a machine, now you had a very complicated problem because you had passions coming out of a machine, a material thing, that were supposed to be controlled by an immaterial thing, which he called the cogito. It's basically the rational soul. It's an immaterial I in, inside. And so how does an immaterial I control material passions? Very difficult to, to, to untie that knot. And it led to, you know, uh, unending complications. Some people tried to resolve the problem by making everything a machine. And this is... a uh, de la Métrie, who had this idea of machine man, that there was no soul, there was no mind, the whole thing was a machine, that intention was a ruse. And, you know, these are some of the people that we see now who work in artificial intelligence, and we hear some of these noises out of Silicon Valley, that uh, we really are um, elegant computers and machines. Uh, you know, other people tried to resolve the problem by saying, essentially getting rid of the body and saying, you know, we are all spirit and soul, and that that is the dominant factor, uh, that that controls the body completely. Uh, and, you know, caught in the middle are these people who are trying to be um, materialists 
and mentalists trying to, and in some complicated way, understand how passion and reason work together in human biology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so in a way, what's a person to do? You know, um, when we're how do we deal with these things as we try to make sense of who we are as human beings? Well, you know, I think one of the takeaway points from the book is that we have been bequeathed a culture that has essentially three different m- m- worldviews uh, that uh, dictate who we are and what we mean, and that they're difficult to all make work together. Uh, that we have, despite the Enlightenment's claim, otherwise never been absolved, never been rid of religion. Religion is a powerful force uh, in our culture, and people uh, look to their souls for comfort before death and for solidity in the face of all sorts of difficulties in life. I, I work in a hospital. I am not at all uh, unaware of the need for people in an ICU to have belief and prayer. Uh, you know, but that world um, has gotten much smaller uh, in modernity so that when you get a very bad headache or when you start to twitch, you don't think you've been possessed. You don't think something has happened to you from the spirit world. You run to the doctor and you think something is wrong with this unbelievable machine that I live in that has billions and billions of cells that all work in concert together to allow me to wake up in the morning and go through my day. Um, so you have a, a model of yourself as a, as a, if you're a religious person or a romantic, that's soul-based. You have another model of yourself that's very much brain and body-based. And then you have this model of yourself that you don't know how to quite integrate, which is, I think, the most common model. For modern men and women, we walk around all day having thoughts, having feelings, having desires, intentions, repulsions. That's who we think we are. That's how we form our identities, ourselves. That's the mental world that we live in. Mm -hmm. They're hard to reconcile, all three of them. But I think most people simply move back and forth between the three as they see fit. They don't reconcile them, and that's part of the modern condition that everyone says is so fractured, you know, ever since TSO. It is fractured. There isn't a way to put all of those things into one coherent whole the way the feudal Christian world all cohered. Yeah, yeah. So, so essentially, um, it's about realizing how fragmented our worldview is, how we have to shift from one to the other, uh, and not necessarily come to an integration, which at this point hasn't been possible in terms of a model, but uh, simply an integration of the fact that we have to shift between three models and, and accept that. I think so. And I think that if you allow allowing yourself to think that way, what you don't end up doing is repeat the same old mistakes. So, in other words, if you acknowledge that all of these models have some legitimacy and you understand the boundaries of these models so that they they all have legitimacy and limits, then one model doesn't take over all the rest, which is what we've seen throughout time, that the people with, with you know, who have, um, you know, argued that one of these models is, the only one we should have, have usually done a great deal of disservice to the complexity of 
uh, of human beings. And so, uh, you know, I would say that knowing um, the the boundaries and the legitimacy of each of these models, knowing the questions that they answer for us as human beings, helps us navigate the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's enriching the world, whereas, um, you know, trying to focus on one model results in if inevitable impoverishment. Yeah, I think that's true. I think yeah. that's true. And, you know, today we see something like that where, you know, I think that, um, uh, you know, one of the organizing questions for John Locke way back when was about religious extremism. It was about essentially religious terrorism. And his concern, even though he was himself a Calvinist, that um, that religious extremists from his own community, from the Protestant community, were going to constantly wreak havoc on the political order because these were people who said, essentially, I heard it from God and I tried to organize groups around themselves to um, fight for their cause. And so he was deeply concerned that this would lead to, you know, this is after 30 year, the 30-year war, unending civil war between sects, all of whom claimed, because of their deep commitment to their religion and the, 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 the sanctity of their souls, that they had to keep going to war. And they had to keep going to war against people who had fallen from the truth, who had souls that were corrupted or possessed by demons, and that this was critical to him and critical to his movement to say we have got to base our notion of ourselves on something that is more fallible than I heard it from God, something that is more uh, uh, contingent, prone to prejudice, prone to subjectivity, and that is centrally what his mind is about. It is something that's very fallible, it's built up by the environment, and therefore it is very prone to parochialism and prejudice. It cannot make claims of utter absolute authority. All of its claims of truth are contingent and therefore negotiable. So this idea of, of having a political culture that's built around minds uh, is one that came out of a series of questions that seem very relevant to some of the questions we have today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that, uh, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's striking to see how, uh, how confused the debates can be about, you know, is religion the problem or is extremism the problem? Where is the problem? You know, you see John Locke really wrestling with this in, in a way that emerges uh, with, the, he emerges with the notion of toleration, which is, uh, you know, the central, I think, uh, liberal tenet that makes sense for minds but not for souls, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's, that's uh, in a way, we come back to uh, the point raised at the beginning, that, uh, you know, the benefit of this journey through the history of uh, soul, mind, um, uh, body, is to not just go through the ideas, but actually go through the questions that people wrestled with, uh, in order that they better eliminate uh, the questions that we have today. Definitely. Yeah, I completely agree with that, and and you know, I I, I wrote the book uh, in a way, um, n- not to to you know uh, immerse myself in in the 17th and 18th century, but to find in a deeper way the answer to questions today, and that's why I've been, you know, I've been writing all these op eds about contemporary issues because um, you know studying the origins of modernity have have 
to my mind, helped me at least clarify my thinking on things, ever, you know, from the, the problems in psychiatry, uh, the, the rise of artificial intelligence, uh, the debates about toleration and liberalism and the role of religion and political life. These are all these very big topics that, are, that we wrestle with today that, at least for, in my mind, have old histories that help clarify um, how we should think about. This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. Not to, to you know, uh, immerse myself in, in the 17th and 18th century, but to find in a deeper way the answer to questions today. And that's why I've been, you know, I've been writing all these op-eds about contemporary issues because, um, you know, studying the origins of modernity have, have, to my mind, helped me at least clarify my thinking on things, ever, you know, from the, the problems in psychiatry, uh, the, the rise of artificial intelligence, uh, the debates about toleration and liberalism and the role of religion and political life. These are all these very big topics that, are, that we wrestle with today that, at least for, in my mind, have old histories that help clarify um, how we should think about. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com.